This is episode 30 of the Landscape Photography Show, and on this episode, we have a really good guest. David Danette joins us, and David lives out in California, and I was really excited to share this episode for a couple different reasons. Not only does David have some really interesting thoughts on landscape photography and kind of experiencing other activities in the outdoors whilst photographing the outdoors, but also incorporating childhood memories or reasons why you initially got into landscape photography and enjoying the outdoors. So not only did this like ring true to me and bring forth some inspirational memories that I had growing up and why I actually got into landscape photography, enjoying the outdoors, but also it inspired me just to reflect on those a little bit more and reflect on the reasons of why I enjoy sitting by streams, why I enjoy actually getting in the water and photographing interesting compositions. So take a listen to this episode and be sure to remember those moments in your life whenever you were going out as a kid and just enjoying nature and how you can hark back on those memories moving forward in your photographic life. The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, what's up, guys? We're here with David Danette, and I actually reached out to David on Instagram DM a little while ago, and we started setting up a time to talk, uh, and and just going through his Instagram feed was really inspiring to me, and then I was talking with David just before we started recording of as I was going through his feed, I was just like, man, I got a lot of work to do on my images because it's just so inspiring to see the photographers that come on to this show and how they're doing photography, how they see a landscape completely different than a lot of times of how I see it or how other people see it. But David, um, first of all, welcome and thank you for coming on. And, and why don't we start by getting your background and exactly how you got inspired to get into landscape photography? Yeah, thank, first of all, thanks for having me, David. It's, it's an honor to be on the show. Um, you know, I, I think one of the great things about, you know, this show is it gives, you know, the listeners a chance to, to peek into how other artists got into photography. And my journey really started really as a child, to be honest. I, I grew up in Oregon, in Portland, Oregon, and I spent the majority of, of my time, my discretionary time outdoors. I, I didn't play video games or do anything like that as a kid. I was always outside and I, my grandpa got me into fly fishing at, at a very early age. So the majority of my time was, was spent out there on the river at, during sunrise and sunset when the fly fishing is, is the best. And as you know, those are the most beautiful conditions for photography. And it, as my, my journey through fly fishing, uh, I, I, as it started to expand, I started to get into backpacking. And that's really when my interest for photography took off as I started to backpack into, you know, some of these backcountry locations. I mean, the landscapes were just absolutely beautiful. And I thought to myself, you know what? People need to see how beautiful this is because I'm just going out there with myself, 
my grandfather or, or my, my older brother. And so it, it really, I, I didn't, I didn't have the courage really to pick up a camera really until I graduated from college. And I, I don't know what really held me back from doing so. I think a lot of it really just had to do with intimidation and, and picking up a camera to me just seemed like it was something that was so challenging and, and so difficult. And, you know, I, I finally worked up the courage to do it once my wife picked up, uh, picked up her camera. And, you know, this is kind of a journey that we went on together, even though, you know, we, we, we kind of took, you know, different pathways in, into learning. I'm, I'm more of the just pick it up and get out there and, and start taking pictures. But really, that's how my photography journey you know, got started. It started really with my passion and love for, for the outdoors. When you photograph now, are you kind of transported back to those moments that you had fly fishing with your grandfather? Yeah, uh, to be completely honest with you, absolutely. And when, when I, I spend a lot of time in this, the high Sierra country here in California, uh, backpacking and fly fishing. And, and of course, I, I'm always bringing my camera out there. And, and photography is, has really taken the forefront of, of my interest more so than fly fishing. But I, I really channel those, those moments when, uh, when I was younger, because that's really what created that passion to really pursue photography is just that passion for the outdoors. So I always bring a fly rod with me and I'm always fly fishing during the day when I'm not doing photography. Do you think it's important for like you do fly fishing? Is it important for photographers to kind of have that side hobby or interest in the outdoors while you go out and photograph too? You know, I, I really believe that, that it is because, you know, photography is really contingent. Good photography and landscape is, is really contingent upon great conditions. And, you know, you're not always going to get that. And I think if you have, you know, another outlet, you know, for me, it's, it's backpacking and it's fly fishing. But my love for fly fishing, for me, I can go out on a backpacking excursion in the high Sierras, never see a cloud and spend two or three days out there. And I'm fly fishing and I'm still having an amazing time, not only because I'm fly fishing, I'm catching fish, but really it's just being outdoors. So even if it's not fly fishing specifically, if you're an avid backpacker or if you're a trail runner, I think having something that will provide, provide some kind of a distraction when things aren't perfect and aren't great, it really helps manage your expectations. And you don't feel like you walked away with nothing because you still had an experience, which is part of what photography really is all about, right? It's, it's capturing an experience and then expressing that through an image. But I think that that, that doesn't always happen. And you get skunked more often than not in landscape photography. So for me, I'm finding joy in the, in the fly fishing aspect and the, the backcountry backpacking. It really takes the pressure off of, of getting an image and coming home with something because if I don't, I still had a wonderful experience regardless. Are there moments when you go out searching for a photo and, and you get kind of get lost in not being able to find a good composition, but then while fly fishing, maybe you see something that could come together as a photo? Yeah, I, I, I think oftentimes 
as a photographer, when, when I'm heading out to a location, I have an idea of, of the type of image that I want. It's not a specific image, but it's a type of image. And I'll use a specific example that's, that's relative to the question in terms of, of putting pressure on yourself to find a good composition. I, 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 don't, I don't generally like to do that. I, I, I am guilty of doing that, however. But when I'm, when I'm fly fishing, I'm not thinking about the composition. I'm actually just surveying the landscape. I'm actually more present, I feel, when I'm fly fishing it, with the overall, my overall conditions around me than I am when I'm, when I'm actually photographing because I'm, I'm so focused on one or two things when I'm, when I'm doing the photography part of it. But when you're fly fishing, you're just, you're not thinking about how important it is to get a picture. You're actually distracted by the beauty that's around you. And what's nice is I, I've had many situations where I couldn't find a composition when I got on location. And then by the time sunset rolls around and I'm done fishing, I have found something that is so perfect that I didn't even imagine that I would have found that. But by being present with nature, it gave me the opportunity to see that. Whereas I wouldn't have seen that if I had just, you know, photographer's tunnel vision, which I'm sure we all have. Why we, we talked about your connection to landscapes through those moments as a child with your grandfather, but, but why are the Sierras your go-to? Yeah, the Sierras are my go-to mainly because that's where I spent, I spent a lot of time, a lot of my summer vacations as a child. My, my grandpa actually lived in, in Carson city, Nevada, which is, you know, in the Tahoe area. And we would always drive down to the Mammoth Lakes area, and I, I would spend my nearly my entire summer vacations as a child um, in in Nevada with my with my grandpa, and we would just be, you know, taking you know three four day camping trips into into the Sierras, and I just fell in love with I fell in love with the fishing first and foremost because it's it's also aside from photography, it is one of the best fishing locations in all of California, if not the West Coast in general. Um, but aside from that, it's, it is just so beautiful. I mean, it's, it's the range of light. It is one of those locations that is, I mean, Ansel Adams spent all of his time photographing it, right? And it is just absolutely stunningly beautiful. And it is such a, a large area of land. I mean, the Sierras are a couple hundred miles long. So if you're willing, I mean, the John Muir Trail runs through the Sierras. So if you're willing to put in the time backpacking, you can really get into some remote locations that very few people have ever seen. And that's really what part of the, the big allure to spending a lot of time in that area is that you don't, you don't find yourself photographing the same locations over and over again because there's so much that you can explore. But I just remember being captivated by the landscape as a child and watching the, the I mean, it's sunrise country with the Alpenglow up there. The minute that that first light hits those peaks, there is just nothing quite like it. And I live in Los Angeles and it's to get up into the Sierras, it's four and a half to six and a half hours, depending on what trail you're going to start at. So that gives me, I, I look at it as kind of my hometown mountain range because it doesn't take a lot of effort to get there. And the reward for what some would consider to be, you know, a long drive, spending six hours in a car is just absolutely worth it. 
I mean, if Ansel and John Muir are talking about it, how can you go wrong, right? I agree. <laughs> it's pretty easy to follow in their footsteps. And, and have you ever like copied one of their images? Or Ansel, I guess not really John. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think we all have photographers that we, that, we, that we channel inspiration from. And you have to look back at, at some of the legends that were doing this before they had all this modern equipment. It was way harder to do what Ansel Adams was doing and what a lot of the old four by five and a lot of the, 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 the film guys were doing. You know, so I, I have a lot of respect for that generation of photographer. But I do, I do think that when you get into photography, you get into it because, okay, you're inspired by something. And, and maybe it's nature, landscape, mountains that are inspiring you. But then you have to be inspired by an individual person or person's work that really gives you kind of a baseline as to what, what is it that you're trying to achieve? So to sit here and say that, that I haven't copied, you know, an Ansel Adams photo or, or other photographers for that matter, uh, you know, that, that would be a false statement because I think we all have. And I think, you know, that is, that is one of the, the best ways to know that you're actually, you're doing things the right way if you can capture an image similar to one of those iconic photos. You know, most notably for me, it, it, when you're standing at Tunnel View in Yosemite, which Ansel Adams has the, some of the most world-renowned photos from that location in black and white. I mean, I've never converted a black and white image, but I'm always trying to, to duplicate those types of conditions when I go to a place like that. And that's really one of the locations where I feel like I, I cut my teeth at the, as a photographer was Yosemite because I, I had so many good images to use as a baseline as to you know, it, it's just affirmation that I, I'm, I'm doing this the right way and I'm heading in the right direction. Who are the living legends that you're drawing in, inspiration from? That is a really good question. And I'll tell you, it's, it, it, there, there's, there's a range of photographers that really inspire me. My father-in-law, Dennis Freitas, is a renowned landscape photographer. And I've learned a lot from him from a, a mentorship standpoint. But his work to me is is really gold standard work, and he's got a portfolio that ranges back forty years worth of images, and it is absolutely incredible. So you know, for me, he's he's kind of kind of my baseline. If I can get approval from him, then then that's good enough for me. But some other photographers that are really inspiring right now, um, Rick Ergenbright is a an Oregon photographer. He is is he's another one of those photographers that's been doing this for 20, 30 years or so and has a fantastic portfolio. Tad Bauman in Colorado, absolutely love his work. Miles Morgan, his work is amazing. And then of course my wife, Nikki Freitas, her work is just mind-blowingly inspiring. All right. You're married to Nikki Freitas. You just said that. Who I'm I'm gonna maybe try to get you in trouble a little bit here. Who's better? You or Nikki? Well, it's, I don't, I, that's a really good question. And that's a question that I, I think a lot of people want to know. But there isn't a, we don't look at it as a competition of who's a better photographer, right? Because I have my vision when I'm going out in the field and, and, and she has hers and I have my own processing style. 
And my approach to shooting an image and editing my images is a lot different than hers. So I think we both can coexist on the same plane without there being that competition. But we both we both do do great work and we both are able to achieve our creative visions, you know, from the field through pro- post-processing up until we release an image. So that that's that's how I'm going to answer that question, but yeah, I I I think as an individual artist, I think we we always realize that we we want to be better and we inspire to be better. And who are the people that inspire you to be better? And I gain that inspiration from my wife. That was a very political response. <laughs> Hopefully, it doesn't get me in trouble. <laughs> no, I think you're good on that front. What brought you and Nikki together? Well, we we met when we were in college. And uh, but the two of us went to Oregon State University, which is in, in the central uh, part of Oregon. Um, and, you know, we, we've known each other, you know, we dated each other in college. And Nikki moved out to Los Angeles six months before I graduated, and she pursued a career in fashion. And I still had to had to finish up my degrees. I studied environmental science and chemistry as an undergrad. And my original intention was to, to, to get into a field where I can do an environmental and conservation work. But I moved to Los Angeles mainly because I really, I just, I needed a break from, from Oregon and I just wanted to get out and just make it on my own. Right. And being that Nikki was here, you're always looking for familiar faces and, and we kept, kept in touch and kept our relationship going. And, you know, many years later, we we decided to get married, and we've been married now for five years. So that's kind of how it started, and that's where we're at today. How do you manage your two personalities, both in marriage and working together creatively? Because a lot of times, you don't often have two creatives in the same marriage relationship. Yeah, David, that that's a really good question, and and I think that it, it is it can put it can put a strain on any relationship or marriage or even friendship for that matter if it's you know two f- photographer friends that go out, and I, I know that there can be challenges with being on the same page. But one of the the great things about Nikki is she's very free spirited. She doesn't have a structured approach to the way that that she approaches photography in the field, whereas I'm the exact opposite. I'm I'm very systematic with my approach, and and I'm always visualizing like, okay, this is exactly what we're looking for, what I'm looking for. But when we're planning trips, this is something that we do together, and we we talk about, okay, well, what locations do you want to go to, or do we want to go to collectively? What type of images are we looking to get? So really, it's a it's a collaboration, and we build out an itinerary that will that will meet both of our agendas. Because there's certain things that I might like to photograph that she's not really that into, or vice versa. I mean, I love all photography, so I'm, I'm I'll get out there and I'll photograph anything in nature. That's kind of one of the the challenges that I like to take on, you know. But because both of us do work full time, we have to be very strategic about our approach and the time that we spend in the field together, because this isn't just photography for us. Oftentimes this is our discretionary vacation time as well. 
So it, it's something that we have to we have to find a balance in the way that we approach it, so that we're maintaining we're putting our our marriage and our relationship first, and photography always comes second. So even though there may be times where we're bickering at each other and things are happening in the field and it's absolute chaos, but there's never any ill will towards each other. It's everything comes from a good place, and and we work together as a as a team more than anything else. So there's there's not a lot of friction or conflict in our relationship it, it, as we spend time in the field. Does working together strengthen your creative vision? I think it really does. And the main reason that I think it does is it gives it, it gives two different perspectives. So four eyes in this case is better than two. And two minds are, are better than one where we get onto a location and, and maybe we just drove, you know, four hours to get into Death Valley from Los Angeles and we're there for just, just to shoot the sunset. That's all. And we have to be, we have to share our insights. So maybe I'll put a wide angle lens on and try some different angles at a 16 millimeter perspective. And, you know, maybe Nikki will have a mid range telephoto on 24 to 70 and, and test out some compositions that way. And we can really figure out, okay, well, what's working, what's not? Do you need a polarizer Does it, or not? You know, do you need neutral density filters or, or, or don't you? So there's a constant line of communication between the two of us as we're working together in the field. Hey guys, I just want to take a quick moment to pause to talk about this show's sponsor and that's visualwilderness.com. Visualwilderness.com is a place where you can go to really up your level as a landscape photographer because there are plenty of articles that you can access, but there are also plenty of courses that are on there too that are not only going to help you with your infield work, but they're also going to help you with your post-processing work. I'm a contributor to that site and I have several courses on visualwilderness.com that are going to help you with your post-processing. Right now, for a limited time, my courses are on sale for 33% off if you use the code DAVID33 during checkout. Again, that's David33 during checkout for 33% off of all my courses on visualwilderness.com and my website too when you use the code David33 during checkout. You can head to today's show notes on davidjohnstonart.com slash podcast to find those and get the links on how you can get not only memberships to visualwilderness.com but all of my courses as well. But now let's get back to the episode. You know, we've talked about a lot of photographers that inspire you. We've talked about you and Nikki together going out and photographing, but I'm curious, how would you describe like your style specifically? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I think, you know, every photographer tries to, to have their, their own unique style. When you, when you open up a, an image or you see an image, you, you automatically can associate that image with, with a person. And I think that's one of the, the biggest challenges. And I, I think I'm still working on getting, getting to that point. But my approach is, I don't want to use photojournalism, but I, I try to be as authentic to the scene as I possibly can 
as to how I saw it and how I was feeling in that specific moment. So I, I like my work to to maintain that specific aesthetic. Do I think that it it stands out amongst other photographers? It's really hard to say with in terms of a post-processing style, but I think the stylistic approach to the composition, you can you can look at my work and you can see a lot of commonalities with the way that I uh, approach my landscapes with, you know, wide angle lenses and, and, you know, how I, how I like to use leading lines. And, and, and I think my work in the field is almost more powerful than my, my post-processing work, but you know, that's always subject to interpretation, but yeah, I, I think we're, as artists, we're always trying to get, an aesthetic that really solidifies who we are as an artist. I know I'm still working on that. And I think a lot of the listeners uh, to this podcast are probably still working on that. Um, but, you know, as long as, as I feel comfortable with the way the image looks when, when I'm done processing it, then I feel good about it. Why do you think it is difficult for photographers to put a, a strong definition on their style? I honestly think the the biggest challenge is finding your own your own voice. And mm. one of the biggest challenges with with landscape photography is a lot of a lot of photographers are photographing similar things. So it's really hard to stand out and and be original. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with you know photographing the iconic locations. I think it's fantastic. I mean that's that's what the driving force is for a lot of people to get into photography. But I think that you get into sort of the, you get categorized as, you know, oh, well, that's just kind of a stock photo now or a stock style. And I don't think that that's fair to, to put people, anybody in that category. But it's really, the challenge is finding unique compositions where you can do something that really stands alone from what other people have done. And I think that that's the challenge that, that we're all facing when we go out in the field is originality because originality is going to what is, is ultimately what's going to make you stand out amongst everybody else. What are you doing in uh, your research to make your composition stand out in that way? That's a really good question. And I think it really depends on the location because some locations don't really allow for that because you have minimal access to, to the landscape because you, you, want to uh, the leave no trace principles are are essential for us to follow right so you can't go blazing through a field of wildflowers to get to a better field of wildflowers but i do think it it's essential to do to to do research to look at aerial views on google maps and especially in the high sierras it's there's not a lot of photos of some of these really remote spots so you really have to look at the topographic maps and see if there's are there streams running at, running out of these lakes or are these, you know, just standalone lakes? How, how long are these lakes frozen? For example, I'm just using the Sierras as, as an example, because mm -hmm. it's, I, I, I plan my trips very strategically to these locations. And oftentimes it really depends on the weather also. And, and I've, people are going to think that this is just absolutely crazy, but because, you know, I, I have a full-time job and, and, I spend my discretionary time doing photography. Sometimes I really have to put myself out there 
And if I know a, a storm is going to be a summer storm is going to be moving through the Sierras, and the chance of getting some really epic conditions in the high country, I'll start my hike at midnight because you have to have permits to get into these locations. So if I don't have one, then I'll wait till midnight and I'll hike in. So it's a day hike, and I'll sit and I'll wait for for sunrise, and I'll photograph the sunrise and I'll hike right back out. So it it's really just looking at weather. And, and looking at, at topographic maps and, and seeing what the landscape has to offer if you're willing to venture off trail a little bit, as long as it's, you know, leave no trace and it's safe to do so, that's really my approach to, to planning out some of these trips. Yeah, and I think, David, that a lot of that is surprising to people when you tell them of, of how much work actually goes into getting to a location within legal terms of, like you said, waiting till just after midnight. So you're within that 24 hour window and and also respecting that location. But then you're trying to balance a day job as well. Is that hard to balance? You know, it it is because, I mean, my passion for photography and, and my passion to get out is is so strong and not being able to be free and do that you know at my own discretion is is always a challenge but on on the flip side of that you know having a job also takes the pressure off of photography and it doesn't force me to to have to walk away with an amazing image if i go out and i get skunked you know my livelihood does not depend on it right so you, you have that, that kind of that safety buffer that gives you, you know, financial comfort in terms of, you know, planning out trips. And, you know, Nikki and I will, will plan our trips out to where we'll do a lot of three-day weekends where you're only taking one day off of work. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll fly to certain locations so that we're not spending time in a car. We'll rent a car and, and we'll go about doing that. So we... We definitely have a way of making it work. It's just, it's very exhausting at times. But if you really want to pursue photography and, and, and work full time, then those are the sacrifices that you just have to make. And one of the things that's most discouraging, though, is when it's, it's Wednesday and you're looking at the weather report and it looks like it's going to be absolutely amazing conditions and in a place that's, that's local to you. But you know that your job responsibilities are are far far more important, <laughs> and you can't take that time off of work, you know, to go chase amazing conditions somewhere else. But that that's okay, and, and I think that that's the reality for a lot of us and a lot of your listeners. But the bottom line is, you just have to get out there and take pictures. You know, I'm glad you mentioned leave no trace and and doing things legally but also in a way that allows you to create the photograph that you wanted to create and as i was going through your gallery on your website and just looking at all your different images you know a lot of photographer styles came to mind of like uh josh snow came to mind um nick page came to mind but when i got to your images on yosemite one of the photographers that did come to my mind was chris burkard and and I did talk to him recently and I asked him the same question. So I wanted to ask it to you too. What is the balance of inspiring other people to go out and explore these locations while also 
being responsible about it? And I, I, yeah, that's a really good question, Dave. And I think that, you know, earlier on, on in the interview, I, I mentioned one of the reasons why I got into photography is because I really believe that, you know, people need to see these beautiful places. And that's not just through a, a photograph. I think that people need to, to see and experience being there in person. But because there's so many people spending time in the outdoors, the, the importance of doing it responsibly is, is more important now than, than really it ever has been. Because we're at a point now where the amount of people that are, that are spending time in the backcountry or spending time really in the national parks or you know, state or local parks and, and not doing it in a responsible manner, we're really starting to see the impact that that is having. And I don't think that it's too late to, to turn the corner on that. And I think it really just starts with, with educating the public on how to adventure responsibly. And that's really the, the big question now is how do we get that message out so that people will start to practice these leave no trace principles? Because there's, there's only so many things that an individual can do. And I'll use Mount Rainier as an example. Anyone who's been up there to, to Paradise Meadow understands that, that that place is, it really is paradise. But they have, you know, park rangers and stewards that are hiking all day long, making sure that people aren't venturing out into the fields. But you can see there are spots where people, you know, decided to, to go off trail. And, and those fragile ecosystems, when you trample through a meadow like that and, and compact the soil, those flowers don't come back for a while. So, you know, there's times when you're, you're looking and I, even in some of my images from Mount Rainier, you can see that there, you know, that someone had made a path through there in a previous year because there's no flowers growing in a certain spot. And it's, it's really discouraging because you don't have to go off trail to come away with an original image or a beautiful image or just have a wonderful experience out there. Well, that, that's the problem. What's the solution? Well, I think the, the solution is it really starts with with public education and i think you know at bringing awareness to it and you think about your social media influence and the impact that the messaging can have there i think it's important to when you're sharing an image uh not just an image of of a, a fragile loc of, of a fragile location or a fragile spot but really all all places talking about you know, how fragile this ecosystem is and how important it is to practice leave no trace principles, really that I think it starts, it starts with the photographer. It starts with the people who are encouraging people to go out to these locations specifically. But I also think that there, there needs to be more education done by the national park system. And, you know, this is, this is a problem that I, I wish we had a, a structured solution for but I don't think we're there yet. But I think that we can do our part, you know, from a, a, a photography community to share some leave no trace best practice principles on some of our images when we're posting them just to remind people, you know, the importance of protecting these fragile ecosystems. Well, what do you think, David? I think that I think you're right on that of we, since there's no like adequate funding for the national park system to do this, or if they did it, would people actually show up? I think a lot of those questions are the first things that would come to my mind if, you know, the national park system did do like a, 
I don't know, just something simple on Facebook Live. You know, do they have the resources, the money, the manpower, the attention to do all of that? Sure, for people who are already interested in the outdoors and interested in those locations. Uh, but for the people who go there once or twice a year for two days at a time, is it the same interest level where they're going to tune into something like that or pay for a resource to learn how to respect the location? So one of the words, David, that you threw out was influencer. Um, and I think especially with social media, like the stigma to that word is, uh, you know, millennial female who's pushing beauty products on people. Well, I kind of see it differently as we're all influencers in our field of where we're sharing these places to, and we have to do a better job of maybe even researching how these influencers on social media are really gaining a following and educating their public on some of the goods that they're selling. Maybe we need to do the exact same thing if we're really serious about protecting locations on educating our audience on doing that. I mean, what are your thoughts? I, I, I absolutely agree. And, and when you think about the term influencer, it's, it's funny how you, you, you describe that. And I think of a, a lot of people, that's the first thing that pops into the mind, right? Is, oh, it's mm -hmm. just this millennial person that may be you know, promoting products or whatever. But we're all influencers, right? And we all have, we all are influencing behavior by by being active on a social media channel. So if if my actions, whether I have a hundred followers or a hundred thousand followers on Instagram, my actions can influence someone to have a certain behavior in one of these locations. But it's not just it's not just photographers. I mean, you said it best when you're when you said that it's there's a lot of people that just visit for a day or two and do they have the same interest in these environmental principles? And the truth is, I, I don't know, I, because it's not really brought up probably in a, as an important topic into anything that they're they're doing in their lives. But as mm -hmm. a photography community, you know, we're hyper aware of it. And some of us are better than others at, at obeying these leave no trace principles. So I think we all just need to lead by example more than anything else. It starts with us lead by example, and hopefully that'll have a positive in, impact on the people who pursue these places. While we're talking right now, we can't really go into a lot of these locations, especially national parks are closing down to keep crowds away because of COVID-19 isolation rules that are set in place. Right now in isolation, what are you doing to stay inspired creatively? It honestly, David, it's it's been a challenge, and I thought I would have more. I would have more inspiration to, you know, to to invest in myself and and watch editing videos, work on pictures, and and or editing photos. But I really just I haven't had a lot of inspiration to do that, and I think that I'm inspired by the energy around me more than anything else, and and right now just the energy it just the, the planetary energy is is really down so I, I i'm lacking inspiration for creativity to be completely honest with you it's been a challenge but i know that we're going to be this is our new norm for at least here in california for at least another four weeks 
So this is a hurdle that I'm going to have to overcome. And when I said in, invest in myself, I, I have, there's so many awesome tools and resources, uh, photography tutorials out there from some really, really great photographers and instructors and YouTube videos that are, that are very informative as well. So I do plan on spending some time learning some new techniques and maybe going back and, and looking through my portfolio of images that I haven't gotten around to editing yet and hopefully find some inspiration from there. Well, he's David Dinat. David, thank you so much for coming on, talking to us about landscape photography, kind of your views on it, your style, and some of the ways that your life just kind of led you right into this. Yeah, thanks for having me, David.